David's life and, and now kind of the, the upswing, if you would. At this point, David's kind of been on this descent as God is refining and purifying and shaping and, um, and removing from him all the impurities. And, uh, and now we're going to see that God has, has, has kind of put him through the kiln um, and now he comes out and God's going to begin to fill him up. The building process is on the upswing now. So um, where we pick up David in chapter 30 is that he has spent the last uh, 16 months essentially outside of the will of God. He was told by the prophet Gad uh, very much at the beginning of his difficulties that he was to abide in Judah. God wanted him in the land uh, even though that wasn't the easiest place to be, uh, even though there was um, much pressure, Saul knew where he was, uh, that's where God wanted him. But David grew discouraged and uh, left. He went into Philistine territory, and for the past 16 months now of his life, he's been living a lie, uh, working for a heathen boss, uh, lying about his, his actions and, and his product and what he's been doing. And he gets backed into a corner when um, Achish, this Philistine king, uh, assigns David now to be on the front lines of a battle against the Israelites. So he's going to have to fight against his own people. And uh, by the providence of God, at the end of the last chapter, David was spared from having to do that. The other lords of the Philistines uh, said, no, we don't, want, we don't trust David and his men. What if they turn on us in the battle? It's a vulnerable position. Uh, send him home. And so Achish sends David home, and David is spared uh, from, from this uh, um, dilemma that he pretty much put himself into through his backsliding. And so you think almost that he got away with it until we come into our text this morning and you realize uh, you never get away with backsliding. Uh, there's always consequences when we step outside of the will of God. Um, things get burned, and that's what's going to happen here. And so uh, here come the consequences. It tells us in verse 1 of chapter 30, it says that it came to pass that when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day. And so Ziklag was, was the city that was given to David by Achish, uh, where he'd been camping. And now he returns there, where they had left all of their wives and children and possessions. And it says that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. Now, one of the perpetual enemies of Israel that keeps uh, kind of rearing its head throughout the pages of the Old Testament is this people uh, known as the Amalekites. Now, uh, Amalek, the original, the, the grandfather, if you would, or the patriarch of the Amalekites, was a descendant of Esau, who was the twin brother of Jacob. And uh, um, we don't read much about him until Exodus chapter 17. And, and really, Exodus 17 is really the foundation of where Amalek comes onto the stage and, and really sets the tone for who he is and what he represents. Anytime there's a, a constancy to the way something appears in Scripture, there's a reason for that. So the, the Amalekites are significant. They're not just another name uh, or ite uh, amongst the ites, but the Amalekites are actually quite significant. 
when Israel was led by Moses out of Egypt and they came into the wilderness for those 40 years, um, at the end of that wilderness wandering, when, when Israel was in, in a very weakened condition, the Amalekites uh, kind of attacked them sneakily from behind and tried to destroy them. And it's a very famous battle. You know, it's the one where where uh, um, Joshua took the, the, the men and they went to fight. And Moses took Aaron and Hur and they went up on the mountain. And Joshua was down in the valley fighting and Moses was up on the hill with Aaron and Hur. And whenever Moses' hands were raised, Israel would prevail in the battle. But when his hands grew weary then the Amalekites would prevail. And so what happened was Aaron and Hur came up on either side and they just stood one, one on one and one on the other, holding up Moses' arms, and they stayed in that position until Joshua prevailed. Uh, and, then, and then Amalek was, was beaten back. But God says something, or Moses says something th- uh, by the Spirit of God that gives us an insight into this uh, Amalekite enemy and, and what they represent. In, in Exodus chapter 17... Uh, the very end of the chapter, it says that Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will, and it's something that's yet future, not immediate, but someday, I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So a day's coming when there will be no more Amalekites. And but it says Moses built an altar and he called the name of it Jehovah Nisi or the Lord is my banner, the one who fights for me. And here's why. He said for he said because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So so one day the memory of Amalek is going to be blotted out. But until that day comes, God is going to have perpetual war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so in the scripture, Amalek becomes a a picture or a type or symbol of the flesh. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood in the context of having outward enemies. That the weapons and our warfare, it's a spiritual war. And so the enemies and the battles of the Old Testament that Israel faced physically have a New Testament application in a spiritual and invisible realm. And so the enemies of the Christian are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those are, in, those are invisible principalities. And what Amalek represents is our battle, our perpetual battle with the flesh. And the people of God have been in a war against our own flesh since the very beginning, since the beginning of the history of re- the redemption of God. And so Amalek is a picture of the flesh. And it's fitting in our story of David here because David has been living in his flesh for the past 16 months, he's been relying upon the arm of the flesh, his own strength, his own mind, his own stratagem. Everything that's in himself has been his governor and his guide for these 16 months. And now he's going to reap. Now, the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, 
Paul said in verse uh, 9, I'll read it to you. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And so whatever we sow, we're going to reap. And if we sow to our flesh, we're going to reap of our flesh. And if we sow to the Spirit, we're also going to reap in the Spirit. So David, for 16 months, has been sowing to his flesh, and now he's going to reap. Now, the, 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 the terrible truth about sowing and reaping, especially when it comes to the flesh, is that you always reap more than what you sow, right? Uh, it says if we sow to the wind, we're going to reap the whirlwind. It's always magnified. It's always more intense. And so now Amalek invades the south. They burn Ziklag with fire. David gets burned, right? <laughs> And so in verse 2, it says that they also had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, so they didn't kill anyone, but they took them and they carried them away and they went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Now, this is not the first time in the history of God uh, that a man has spent 16 months living in his flesh and sowing in his flesh, and the result of it is that he loses his wife and his kids uh, and his possessions. But that's exactly what happens to these men. They check out on God, they think it's going to be okay, and they lose their wives, they lose their kids, and they lose their possessions uh, because of it. But it says in verse 4 that David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. It's a sad thing, but oftentimes it takes the consequences of our carnal, fleshly lives uh, to come to pass before we wake up and realize the error of our ways. But David does. It, you know, they lose everything, and it says that they weep, and the, the strength of this weeping is, to, is, is a bitter weeping until they had no power. It can't help but think of Peter, right? Remember when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times? And, and Peter said, it'll never happen, Lord. And then he did it, and Jesus made eye contact with him, and the rooster crowed, and it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. And it was a weeping unto repentance. It was a sorrow that, that came from repentance or led to repentance. And we see that in David and his men here as they realize uh, the, the error of what they've done. They, they left themselves vulnerable. The enemies capitalized on that vulnerability and now they've lost and they have no idea what's come of, of any of this. And it says in verse 5 that David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for 
his daughters. And so David now, even the men whom he had saved, essentially, that he had given a, a purpose to, that were distressed and in debt and discontented, that had been with him now for, for, for these years, that have come to trust him and love him, uh, they're questioning even his leadership. They're seeing that this man, who is supposed to be this great leader, uh, he's in his flesh. We can't trust him. We've lost everything again. And they speak of stoning him. Guys, listen. The same people that praise you one minute will pick up stones to stone you the next. And if you're snickering and smiling in here, it's because in some, to some degree you've experienced the truth of that in your lives. Remember when Paul the Apostle went to Lystra? He went in there and uh, a man was healed uh, miraculously, supernaturally. And the people saw that healing and they immediately began to throw garlands uh, and flowers and they even tried to offer a bull in sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas, and they called them Jupiter, you know, and they were giving them the names of gods because uh, because they had done this thing. And Paul tore his his robe to expose his scars to show, hey man, we're just flesh and blood like everyone else. Don't do this. We're not. We're nothing special. You're you're, you're putting your praise in the wrong place. But these people were were basically ready to make them God. And then it says in the next verse that some Judaizers came into the, the region and they slandered Paul and Barnabas and said that these men are deceivers. They, they just said it. They just said these guys are deceivers. And the men of Lystra dragged Paul and Barnabas outside of the city and stoned them and left them for dead. So the same men that, that, that one minute are ready to coronate them as gods took them out of the city and stoned them in the next breath just because someone said something slanderous against them. Beware of putting your trust in people. No matter how much support you get from them, no matter how encouraging they are, you know, it isn't that we should be standoffish or cold, but where should our confidence be? In the Lord alone. That's right. Jesus said this, they're profound words, but he, he said it to the Pharisees that were um, basically bringing him issue and trouble and accusing him of being a deceiver and saying how, how strong their faith was and all this kind of thing. And he gave them this uh, condemnation. He said to them this. He said, you know, you say that you believe in God. He says, but you don't believe in God. He actually said, your dad is the devil. He says, if you, if you believed in God, you would listen to the words that I say. But this is the proof that he said. How can you believe in God that receive honor from one another and seek not the honor that comes from God only? And basically what Jesus was saying there is that it's actually a sign of unbelief when we look for our approval in the eyes of men and don't seek it only from the, the approval that comes from our Father, which is in heaven. And, and so be careful of men-pleasing. The Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. Beware of serving just for the eyes of what men will see or what you'll get from men. Because the men that praise you will stone you just as quickly, just as easily. These men that David had saved... Turn around to stone him. But notice what David does. It says that David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. He didn't encourage himself in what he had done for these men or what he could do for men. He encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Now, what does it mean to encourage yourself in the Lord, your God? And if you think about it, this is an extremely difficult thing 
for anyone to do in the position that David is in right now. Because basically he's in this position because he sinned against the Lord, right? And, and the, the, the tendency of, of ourselves when we sin against God is that, and then we reap the consequences of that sin is that we think that we cannot go to God. Well, this is, I'm reaping the fruit of my sin. God's not going to help me. Remember when our parents told us when we were kids, you know, they would say, don't climb that tree. And what would we do? We'd go climb the tree. And they'd say, well, if you fall out of that tree, don't what? Don't come running to me. Well, I won't. My legs will be broken. I won't be able to come running to you, you know. But, but that's what they say. They say, if you do that, don't come running to me because I already told you. And that's our tendency, isn't it? We think, well, God already told us not to do this. We did it. Now our legs are broken. So where can't we go? To God. But that's not the case, see. Mercy, the cross, Christ... The scripture, the promise of God that says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, bids us to come to him for mercy, even though we don't deserve it. The quandary that we're in when we sin is that where else are we going to go? We have, the devil ain't going to forgive us. He can't. Only God can. And so if we don't encourage ourselves in the Lord when we fail, then guess where our encouragement will come from? Nowhere. <laughs> there is none. Thankfully, there's restoration with God. Thankfully, there's mercy with God. And so David kind of looks at his options here. He sees 600 men with fire in their eyes and stones in their hand. He looks at his situation and he realizes, well, I've got one choice here. I can go to God and hope I get mercy or I can die. <laughs> you know? And so he encourages himself in the Lord. Now, how do you do that? You begin to talk to yourself about the Lord. Talk to yourself about God. Okay, you start to rationalize it through. When I was yet his enemy, Christ died for me. The Bible tells me that God is omniscient, which means that he knows everything. Meaning that he already knew that I was going to be in this mess, and he knew I'd be in this mess today before he even saved me. And you begin to talk yourself into the boldness to approach him. Because the Bible gives us that kind of boldness to approach him when we're in dire straits and in horrible circumstances. Now, this is an important lesson for David, and it's an important lesson for every one of us. Because if we're going to lead, even if that leadership is just in our homes or just in our wives or in the small arena that God has given to us, then we are going to end up in situations where we're going to need to encourage ourselves in the Lord, where we're going to blow it, we're going to be in heavy things, and we're going to need to talk to ourselves about God. And so David convinces himself here by the promises of God in his own word that he's got the boldness to approach God. Have you ever felt like you need to pray, but you feel like you don't have the privilege or that you don't deserve to be able to come to God. And it kind of takes your faith right out from under you. You're standing on whatever faith you've got, and then you start thinking about your behavior. Well, I haven't read my Bible in a week. I haven't thought about God for a week or more. My life is not in a place where it should be. I have no business. I can't just come to God now. I've got to do something first. Maybe I'll read for a couple days or reestablish my devotions. Then I'll come to him. And basically what happens is that all of the, the, the fleshiness of our lives takes the faith right out of us. You can't do that. To encourage ourselves in the Lord is to stand upon his promise. His mercy 
is greater than my sin, than my frailty, than my weakness. His cross has torn the veil that separates me from God. And so whatever enemy, whether it's my guilt, whether it's my behavior, whether it's my conscience, whether it's my rationale and my logic, whatever enemy is going to try to keep me from coming to God, I've got to go around that enemy and just walk right through it boldly. That's what David does here. That's what it means to encourage yourself in the Lord. I've got no other hope, so I've got to go to him. Isn't it funny when we, as dads, you know, we look at our kids, right? And, and, and they ask us for something. They ask us for something ridiculous. Like they just want like a bike or they want something, you know. And they consider none of the obstacles. They just think, well, dad gets a paycheck, you know, and he's got more money. He's got more money than I do. And so I'm just going to ask him for it. And they come just like, hey, can I get a bike? You know, can I get an iPod or can I get a phone? And they don't consider anything else about it. And what do we as dads do? We immediately go, well, they're not thinking about this. We're not thinking, they're not thinking about this, you know, the whole thing. And then, you know, we kind of just give our, our answer based on, on whatever, you know. But put yourself in, in, in the father's position for a minute when we come to him in that way. He knows that we've got nothing, and he knows what we have need of, and he knows what he's promised us. And so we can stand in boldness to come to him even when we feel like we're not right. We must, we, we get right. That's what we do. We confess our sins, we get right, and then we encourage ourselves in the Lord. And you know what he does? He answers. He helps. David is reaping his own fruit, and God's still going to help. Watch. It says that David said to Abiathar, the priest, Abimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. It was a, a, a tool that the priest would use, an instrument of seeking God. And so Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, so God answers his prayer specifically, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. So David doesn't consult with his generals or his strategists. He doesn't look and Google and say, what are the odds? He doesn't do any of those things. He takes it immediately to God. He asks specific questions and he gets specific answers and insight from God, an assurance in his heart that he's going to recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. It encourages me to know that David, uh, a man of like David, out of 600 men could have 200 that actually get tired. <laughs> you know, and that it's okay to be tired and that there's something to do for someone who's weary and doesn't have the strength. And so he leaves 200 behind because uh, they're too tired. And so they found now an Egyptian in the field and they brought him to David and they gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of fig newton and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drink any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou, and whence art thou? 
And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongs to Judah and upon south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God that thou wilt neither kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down... Behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. Notice the nature of the flesh, right? Every time it gets a spoil, what does it do? It just indulges itself. That's what these guys are doing, just indulging themselves. And so David, verse 17, smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. So imagine the strength, just the spiritual strength. I mean, here they left 200 guys behind because they're so faint that they can't even cross over. And now for 24 hours, these guys run on adrenaline and they fight, um, fight from them. And so it says that there escaped not a man of them except for 400 young men, because Amalek will, will be persistent from generation to generation, right? which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks and the herds, which they drove before those other cattle and said, this is David's spoil. And, uh, and then David came, came back. And so David goes and David recovers absolutely everything that was taken, all that belonged to the men, all of the women and children, all of the possessions. And furthermore, he, he gains on top of that all of the spoils that the Philistine or the Amalekites had taken from all of their other uh, conquests and all of these things. Now, what's amazing in this to me is the full recovery that David obtains. He loses absolutely nothing on the other side of all of this. In the mercy of God, everything is restored to him. Now, I shared earlier on in our study that David is not the first one that has ever lost wife or lost child or family or lost possessions because of a season of living in the flesh. In fact, it's quite common. Uh, we hear of it weekly. Someone who comes in and they say, I blew it. I, I did this. I got on this path. I made this decision. Uh, and, and now this is the situation. And it's dire and it's ugly and it's horrible. And, and what do I do from here? Here's the answer. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, actually read it to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, um, verses 3 through 6. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, that is, we live in, in a physical world, we do not war or fight after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, physical, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, strongholds are demonic principalities 
worldly devices, fleshy strengths that hold us back spiritually or that take captive of us in some way and rob from us the things that God has placed into our lives or the things that God has for us. Those are the strongholds. He says, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, fantasies, fake things, lies from the pit, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. That is that even the thoughts that we have that are contrary to the will or ways of God in our lives, God gives us power to pull those things down. And then notice what he says in verse 6. And this is, this is the, 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 um, the verse that relates to David and to us. It says, and having in a readiness, that means having a ready mind or having a willingness within ourselves to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. In other words, when our repentance becomes so pronounced over our seasons in the flesh and over what's happened to us because of our foolishness and our error, and when our repentance becomes so pronounced and we become so passionately hateful towards the sin that has caused the trouble, that God in his power and in his spirit gives us strength to revenge the disobedience. Meaning I'm not going to lie down and allow the consequences of what's come into my life defeat my future. But rather I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. I'm going to take the ephod and the sword. I'm going to fight for 24 hours and I'm going to go take back what the world and the flesh and the devil has taken from me. I have inner readiness now to revenge all disobedience when my obedience is fulfilled. And here is what the scripture is telling us through the life of David and the word of Paul. It's telling us that full repentance plus full faith and standing upon the mercy of God plus a fight to recover what's been taken will result in the recovery of all that's been removed. David recovered all, nothing was killed, nothing was ultimately lost. Full repentance plus full faith plus a fight against the flesh and the devil and those things that have stolen from me will result in a full recovery. In the Lord, there is hope. And David goes from a dire circumstances, reaping what he sowed to a recovery of everything that he lost in the process. And so David recovers all. Then, verse 21, David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered... All the wicked men and men of Belial. So David had some not so Christian men in his army. Of those that went with David, and they said, 
Because they went not with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except to every man, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. And so these guys fought in the battle. They, they, they stayed up all night. They fought for 24 hours. They come back and find these 200 men sleeping, resting, just guarding the stuff. They haven't fought at all. And, and they say to David, well, these guys don't get a share in the benefit of this because they didn't fight with us. That, that, that wouldn't be right. We did the work. Why should they obtain the spoil? But David answered in verse 23, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But, and listen, as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarries by the stuff they shall part or benefit alike. In other words, everyone gets an equal share in the spoils here, whether they were fighting in the battle or whether they were at home keeping the stuff. And here's why. Because anything that we have received is not from our hand, it's from the Lord. Just because it was our strength that was expended and our effort that was put forth, it was God that gave us the victory. And therefore, these that stayed behind served as great a purpose as, as, as we did because they fulfilled a necessary duty. Now, what does that mean for you and I? The Bible says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, he that sows and he that reaps are all rewarded or partakers of the harvest together. One sows, one waters, one reaps, all partake in the reward. Meaning that there's some that go into the battle, the ministry. There's some that are prayerful. That's their place. They're prayers. They can't go into the mission field or into the ministry, but they can pray. Others are givers. They support. They provide the, the, the necessary financial means in order for a ministry to, uh, you know, to go forth. Others reap. You know, have you ever had it where you shared the gospel with someone for years and then someone that they worked with just came to them and said, hey, you want to accept Christ? And they said, yeah. And then they've got to pray with them. And you're like, come on, that's my fruit. You can't eat that. I did that, you know. Bible says that all are rewarded equally. That's the principle as it relates to God. And here's why. Because God's the doer of all of it. The Bible says in Romans 11:36, it says that all things are of him, meaning he originates it, his idea, through him, that means he did it, it's his power, he's doing it, and for him, it's for his glory ultimately. And so if all things are of him, through him, and for him, then I have no place to glory in anything that's accomplished, whether I'm the one that holds the sword or I'm the one that sharpens the sword or the one that cleans the sword after the battle. God's the one that does the work, and so therefore all are rewarded. Paul said again to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? Therefore, if you've received it from God, why do you boast as though you made it yourself? There is no self-made man in the kingdom of God. Everything we have is from God. 
And therefore, the rewards that we receive are because of him, not because of us. As his part is that went into battle, so shall his part be that tarries by the stuff. And so it was from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold, a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. Now, the rest of the chapter, David just divides the spoils between some of the princes of Judah, a very wise political move as he's about to become the king. And the principle in it for you and me is that as Christians, we're to be generous. We're to be givers, not takers. We're to recognize that he that sows reaps in the good things as well as in the bad. And so you can read that. But we'll get into the first few verses of chapter 31. I just want to um, look at the first five verses of chapter 31 and then a few verses of uh, 2 Samuel 1 as we close out this morning. Um, So it says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. So we, we shift scenes now from David back to Saul. And the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell down slain in Mount Gilboa. So remember when Saul went to the witch in the last study two weeks ago? And the witch said, I see you and you're dying. And I see Israel all scattering. Well, it happens. Israel loses the battle. And the Philistines followed hard upon Saul and upon his sons, and the Philistines slew Jonathan and Abinadab and Melchishua, Saul's sons. And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him. So he's pierced, he's hit with an arrow, and he was sore wounded of the archers. Then said Saul unto his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And so he attempts to commit suicide now. Uh, It doesn't work, as we're going to find out in just a moment. But he leaves himself mostly for dead as he falls upon his own sword. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead... He fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Isn't it amazing that Saul is surrounded with men that are more noble than he is? <laughs> you know, here the armor bearer is commanded, kill me. And he's like, no, I can't do that. You know, that would be a violation of, I, I know I have a, a responsibility to you, but I have a responsibility to God and I'm not allowed to kill you. You know, I can't do that. So Saul tries to kill himself and the armor bearer is like, Now what? (laughs) And so he's like, well, I guess you go down with the ship. And he falls on his own sword uh, and he dies there that day. And the rest of the chapter is basically about um, what happened to Saul and his body um, when the Philistines come and they they find it. But now look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. And and I want you to just see the final final end of Saul here as we just close with a, a, a last thought. And an application for ourselves. It says in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag. And so everything is calming down now. David's regrouping. He's re- refreshing. And it says that it came to pass on the third day that behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul, 
with his clothes torn and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance, paid respect. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man told him and said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, Behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who are you? And I answered him, Listen, guys, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So Saul failed in his suicide attempt, realizes he's not going to survive ultimately, and asks this Amalekite to finish him off. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And notice this. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither here unto my Lord. Now, here's an amazing principle, if you read between the lines a little bit. In the Bible, the crown represents our position, it represents our reward, it represents our place in, in the Lord. The Bible talks about the crowns in the New Testament, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord gives, the crown of life, which the Lord will give, it talks about, you know, and, and there are crowns that are, are given to us, that are stored up for us in heaven. But Paul wrote to Timothy concerning his behavior and his lifestyle, and he said these words. He said, beware that no man take thy crown." In other words, be careful that you don't get mixed up in things in this life that cause you to lose your reward, to lose your crown. And one of the saddest verses concerning Saul that we read in the Bible is that he lost his crown to an Amalekite. An Amalekite came and took his crown from off his head and brought it now unto David. He also lost his bracelets. Do you know what your bracelets represent in the scripture? They represent your possessions represent your riches, represents your wealth. And ultimately, Saul lost it, again, to an Amalekite. He lost all of his wealth with finality, and he lost it to an Amalekite. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, I mean treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but rather, he said, store up your treasures in heaven, where moth and rust can't destroy and where thieves can't break through and steal. The consequence of living exclusively for the treasures of earth and putting our investments in everything earthly is that one day all of our treasures will be given to someone else. Remember Solomon said that? Solomon amassed all this wealth and he's like, man, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I've got all this gold and I've got to leave it to a fool. 
And anything that we amass for ourselves here on this earth, we ultimately lose because we can't take it with us. And Saul lived exclusively for earth, and on his last day, everything he has is taken from him. He enters eternity with nothing. His bracelets are taken from him. And thirdly, his spear. Do you know what the spear represents? The spear represents our authority. If you're a shepherd, it's your staff. If you're a king or a general, it's your spear, your sword, it's his authority. And you know what happened? He fell on his own spear. Listen, guys. If our authority is not rooted in submission to Christ, then one day we will fall upon it. That's just the way it works. Authority and submission work together. And if we seek to have authority without good submission, our authority will be our end. We'll die on it. We'll fall right on it. Saul's dead. So they mourned and they wept. I'm sorry, I've skipped verse 11. David took hold on his clothes, tore them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. And David said unto the young men, man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying that I have slain the Lord's anointed. And we'll stop there. We're not going to go any further in the scripture. But here's, here's the, the final thought that I would like to leave uh, us with here this morning as we close. The Amalekites, as I already said, are a, a symbol, a picture of the flesh, the perpetual enemy of the believer. The thing that we will have war with from generation to generation until one day when its memory is completely blotted out when we stand before the Lord and we deal with this flesh no more. But until then, we deal with this flesh. And the word of God to you and I concerning our flesh is that we are to mortify it. Jesus said, if anyone will come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul explains what that means by saying that we are to crucify the flesh with its affections and its lusts. That's the destiny. To the Roman church, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, If we live after the flesh, we will die. But if we, through the Spirit, mortify, crucify the deeds of the body, of the flesh, then we shall live. God gives one command for you and I concerning our flesh, and that is that we're to crucify it and kill it. Saul was told in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Utterly wipe out the Amalekites. And he disobeyed. He let some of it live. Well, I know most of it's bad. I'll cut out the alcohol. I'll cut out the porn. I'll cut out, you know, the, the anger. But you know, my pride has gotten me pretty far in life. And there's some things in this flesh, you know, some of my abilities to manipulate people and work situations and my business savvy and some dishonesty that, you know, I could kind of, we could use this. We could save this alive. We could even use it for God, you know. My money love, 
has been a driving force in my life. And I don't have to put that on the cross. You know, that part, I don't have to give God every part. I'll just let a few Amalekites live. Most of them dead. I'll just let a little bit, a little couple, couple things. No big deal. We'll deal with them later. Who kills Saul ultimately? An Amalekite. The thing that he let live when God said kill it stole his crown, stole his possessions, his reward, and stole his life. Everything was taken. God says to you and I, crucify it. Crucify it. Don't let it live. You say, I hear you. How? Because some of the little things in the pockets of my heart are like that last cancer cell that even the chemo can't reach. How do you crucify the flesh? Here's the answer as we close. Remember when Joshua was in the valley of Rephidim fighting against the Amalekites? When Moses' hands were raised, Joshua prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, Amalek prevailed. So Aaron and her were put one on the right, one on the left, to prop up Moses' arms, right? And when did Joshua prevail? When he turned around from the battle that he was in, and he looked up on the hill, and he saw three men, and the man in the middle had his hands raised. Where do we see three men on a hill, and the man in the middle has his hands raised? On Mount Calvary. It was a picture of the cross. The place where the flesh is mortified is at the cross. By faith and with the profession of our voice, we bring our flesh in all of its filth to God to the foot of the cross. And we say, God, this is what's in my life. I have a tendency towards this. I have an affection for this. I have a love for this secretly. I recognize in your word that if it isn't mortified, that it will kill me, no matter how good it might seem to me or how harmless it might seem to me. So God, I bring it to the foot of the cross. I bring it to the one whose arms are raised, the one who died to this world and put it behind him. And I ask that you would crucify this enemy for me in my fight against it, that I might revenge all disobedience when my obedience is fulfilled. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, it says, if we through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh. We bring it to him in spiritual submission and faith. And he's powerful enough to crucify the flesh. And if we don't, mark my words, men, the flesh will crucify us. It's just the way that it is. God did not put Saul's testimony in Scripture for us as a history lesson but as an admonition and a warning. It's as true today as it was then. If you crucify the deeds of the body, you will live. If you nurse them and let them exist, they will kill you. David encouraged himself in the Lord, full repentance, full faith, full fight, and recovered all. Saul, persisted in his own ways, living after his own flesh, and he lost everything. Ruined the greatest privilege and potential of any life. And the warning and the blessing is put before you and I. 
every day. Choose this day is the call. God gives us the answer. He says, choose life. Choose life. Amen? Amen.